0: But as I said earlier, it, it's good to be back. I've, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, well, at least from here. Two weeks ago, I had the flu, and, and the elders graciously uh, uh, covered and, and, and led the church in prayer and um, gave me time to recover, and I definitely appreciate that. And then the week after I had the flu was actually my scheduled week of vacation, and so I actually uh, had a little bit of a staycation here in the area, which I think was more restful for Amy than it was for me. Uh, but it was still a, it was a, a good time to, to, uh, to rest and reflect on, on what the Lord has been doing. But a lot has happened in the past few weeks since I got to preach. And for me, one of the most amazing things, and by amazing, I just don't mean, wow, that's really cool. But like something I never thought that I would see in my day was that Kanye West announced that he's a Christian. That is something that I never thought that I would see, um, and for those of you who have been living under a rock for the past two decades, uh, uh, Kanye West—he's he, a musician, a a rapper, if you will. No, uh, but seriously, he's he's a very—he's uh, a famous artist and musician uh, who first came out on the scene in two thousand and four with his debut album, College Dropout. And since then, he's been surrounded with controversy after controversy, uh, often for his offensive lyrics degrading women. Or even in 2013, uh, uh, there was a large group of, of Christians against him because he actually had a song titled, I Am a God. His repeated public appearances made him seem over time more and more unhinged, Uh, For instance, his 2009 encounter at the MTV Music Video Awards where he interrupted Taylor Swift's acceptance speech and and, and said, I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had the best video of all time. Or even last year in an interview where he said that since slavery lasted for 400 years that it seems like it was more of a choice, that they remained under slavery. The man was surrounded by controversy. But at the same time, on top of all of that, every album he's ever put out has gone platinum. So people are repeatedly offended by him, but they can't stop buying his music. He created his own high-end fashion line and is married to Kim Kardashian, one of the most wealthy, famous celebrity families, at least here in the United States and he's known to brag about this empire that he has built up around himself and his name. But yet over the past few months it's been obvious that he is searching for something deeper than himself, something with meaning beyond himself as he began the the Sunday morning services which were basically Kanye concerts with a gospel influence. And then he announced that he was going to begin working on a gospel album, which kind of threw everyone off, like, what is going on here? And then on September 27th, a little over a month ago, he released the album, Jesus is King, with lyrics like this that say, to whom the Son set free is free indeed, he saved a wretch like me and he's begun openly proclaiming the the work and the name and the victory of Jesus Christ not in a name it and claim it sort of sense but it seems that he is genuinely and authentically chasing after the name of Christ it seems like he has a genuine conversion a genuine conversion and submitting his heart to Christ there was a very interesting uh, and I believe very helpful article from the Gospel Coalition last week by Eugene Park. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's titled Kanye West, From I Am a God to Jesus is King. But in this article, he's, com- he's comparing the, the enthusiasm of Kanye West to the, the lame beggar that was healed in Acts chapter 3, that it's this so- this someone who is so broken inside And when they find this healing, when they find this Savior greater than themselves, they can't help but walking and leaping and praising God. And that's what it seems that Kanye West is doing right now. And I share all this not to praise Kanye, but as an example of one who apparently had it all but was still searching for something more. He realized that he couldn't do it himself. He had this massive empire of wealth and fame and celebrity power, but it could not bring peace to his soul. And yet when confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it seems that everything has changed. And that is what we see in Hebrews chapter 10. We see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal confidence for every person who believes i'm going to say that again because i truly believe this this is not just some some uh, throwaway line but i truly believe that scripture teaches us that the gospel of jesus christ is eternal confidence for every person who believes and the author unpacks this over the course of chapter 10 and in, in two types of people. First, in verses 1 through 18, we see people of futility. 1 through 18 is an example of people of futility, whereas verses 19 through 39, we see people of faithfulness. So, people of futility, people of faithfulness. And before I go any further, let me pray over our time together. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. That you are a God who hears your people. That you speak into brokenness. That in our understanding that we cannot save ourselves, that you gave a Savior. You gave us your word. You speak to us through your word. And God, I pray that you would speak to us now this morning. That you would use a broken person like myself to communicate your gospel truth. Lord, be with us this morning. Pour out your spirit in this place and use your word to renew our hearts and transform our minds. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now for a quick recap, because we've been in Hebrews for a while. Uh, Again, Hebrews was written by an anonymous author. We don't know who wrote it, but he wrote it to a group of Jewish converts to the Christian faith, hence the letter to the Hebrews. And throughout the letter, the author is unpacking how God has revealed himself in the past, but has since spoken to us through his son. And Donald Guthrie, a a theologian and pastor, has said that the past has given way to better things. The past was good, the things that God did in the Old Testament, those were good, but now because of the sun, it has gotten even better. And I want to say I'm thankful for David Donovan stepping in last week and continuing uh, working through the book of Hebrews, um, especially as we we begin wrapping up uh, the, the book of Hebrews over the next few weeks as we are preparing for Advent as well. But first we look at chapter 10 and we look at the power of, ca- of Christ's sacrifices. We examine people of futility. And we see in verse 1 that uh, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law itself is a shadow of things yet to come. If you were to go to a museum, you don't go to a museum to look at the shadow of great sculpture or great works of art. You don't go to a movie to look at the shadows in the background of the film. You don't go to a fireworks demonstration and turn your back on the fireworks and look at the shadows that they create. The shadows are never meant to be as glorious as the real things that they come from. And the author is saying that the law itself is a shadow of something greater that has yet to come. It is a shadow pointing to the real thing and the law had no power to save. He says otherwise it, it It would have to continue. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleaned, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifices that God's people performed in the Old Testament was, they were never enough to take away sin. The law that God gave was never meant to fully save. It was meant to cover people until the true sacrifice would one day come. In verses 5 through 7, the author quotes Psalm 40, Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8, talking about how the sacrifices and offerings of God were not desired. but that God's chosen one has been prepared and has come to do God's will. God derived no joy from sacrifice. God didn't see his people sacrificing and be like, yeah, I like that blood, keep it coming. The the sacrifices of God's people were, were never a source of joy for God, but they were the commanded payment for sin, that the punishment for sin was blood and death. And so there was no joy behind sacrifice. It was the commanded payment. And then the author takes Psalm 40 and applies it to Christ. And he says that I have come to do your will. That knowing that sacrifice itself did not bring joy to God, Christ willingly came and submitted himself as the perfect sacrifice And said, even though these things do not bring you joy, I have come to do your will. And he poured himself out sacrificially. He gave himself as the sacrifice one time to cover all sin. Behold, I have come to do your will. He, being Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Even after Jesus came and gave himself as the true and perfect and ultimate sacrifice, the Jewish people still continued to make sacrifices at the temple. In fact, sacrifices continued until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And that's why there is not a a sacrificial system in the Jewish people today, because the temple has been destroyed. Otherwise, if if there were a physical temple, there would still be sacrifices to this day for Jewish people. And in a sense, in our Western mindset and in our Christian mindset, we, we look and we even laugh and say, well, how could they even do that? How could they believe that? How could they continue in that? And yet you and I, spiritually and emotionally, do the same exact thing every single day, trying to work and earn and make sacrifices for our own approval and our own salvation. Thinking that if I can just be good enough, if I can work hard enough, then I'll be successful. I can, I can, I can finally make it. I can, I can take care of myself. I can provide for my family if I can just be good enough. Or you might be falling apart inside, but you keep carrying yourself like, if I can just make it look like I have everything together, if I can just get through this next family event without breaking down crying, then I'll consider, be able to consider myself okay. Or you go onto Facebook or Instagram or whatever social media or for those of you that don't use those, even the the chain emails sharing pictures of vacation or family get-togethers and making it look like everything is perfect and wonderful on the outside, afraid to show people the true heartache that you are struggling with. Or maybe you're just living that old-fashioned Christian lie that if I can just do enough Christian things, if I can, if I can just go to a, enough Bible studies, if I can memorize enough Scripture, if I can just do enough things, then God will love me just a little bit more. And you end up being so busy for Christ that you end up neglecting being with Christ. And you're so busy trying to make And earn your own salvation that you're forgetting that Jesus already did. At the end of the 19th, beginning of 20th century, there was a famous, a gifted businessman, an oil tycoon, uh, John D. Rockefeller. And he died in 1937 with a net worth at that time of $1.4 billion. Adjusted for inflation at today's rates, that would be a net worth of $409 billion. That's a lot of money. And he's been, he's been remarked as America's wealthiest person Ever. and he was a, a noted philanthropist he would often give money and fund colleges and, and, and support missionaries and things like that he was actually very engaged in his own church financially and yet when he was asked how much money is enough his famous answer that has been attributed to him is just a little bit more That even at today's rate of having 409 billion dollars. To say that's not enough. I need just a little bit more. For it to be considered enough. And it appears that he spent his life chasing after a shadow that can never be caught. Trying to reach that limit That's just a shadow of the real thing. Now, I'm not God. I don't know his heart. I can't speak to the eternal presence of of his soul. And I can't speak to the presence of your own soul. That's not my job. But I can speak to what scripture says. What it speaks about the people of futility that chase after shadows. The things that cannot save and never will. The, pay, the people of futility, they chase after these things day after day. They, the, the, the pursuit of more money to just have a little bit more or power Or status and having enough friends or acceptance or likes on social media to have more stuff. If I can just have the house with the white picket fence. If we can just have a vehicle for every driving member of the family. If our kids can just get into the right college. If I can just have the right job. And we chase after these things day after day. And they never fulfill because they are shadows. That were never meant to give life. They don't have the power to save. And they lead to frustration, futility, and eternally death. Or as the author says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But for the people of futility, that there is a hope that overcame futility... And the author quotes Jeremiah 33. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That there will come a day, at least for the people of futility, at this point in history, know that we know that that day has come, that there was a day where the Lord took the shadows that pointed at something greater yet to come. And He took the, those people of futility, He took that, that chasing after shadows. He took that desire and longing for something greater. And through the sacrifice of Christ, God takes people of futility and makes them into people of faithfulness. Picking up in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. He's saying, We have this confidence. Why? Because of the blood of Christ, of the, the breaking of his body, of the sacrifice that he made of his own life. Then he goes into these wonderful let us ex, uh, uh, exclamations, these, these let us commands. But he says, As with Jesus coming, As the great high priest, as the one who was interceding on your behalf, as the one who came as the great priest to to pray over and to sacrifice on behalf of God's people, that he intercedes between you and God on your behalf. And as the great high priest did what no earthly priest could ever do, he became the greatest sacrifice himself. He took a... He took your sin, your guilt upon himself, and not only was he the sacrifice or was he the priest offering the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice itself. And he paid the debt that you could never pay with his own life to declare you righteous and to make you children of God. And because of this, you have confidence. So then, And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so right here, he's he's making the distinction that people of faithfulness are faithful to one another. Because of the work that Christ has done to unite people, broken people, once people of futility brought into God's family. People of faithfulness are faithful to one another. Throughout the New Testament, authors refer to believers as part of God's family, part of the body of Christ, part of a spiritual building being built to the glory of God. And these analogies are not accidents. Because the work of Christ, the life and death and resurrection of Christ, brings God's people of, of, every na- of every nation, every tongue, every skin color, every background brings God's people together into one. And the author says, let us consider how to stir one another, not neglecting or abandoning the worship together, but encouraging one another, that there is a call that in your Christian faithfulness, there is a call to be faithful to one another, to worship one with one another to spend time and study and praise and adoration with one another why because i need you to share with me what christ has done in your heart just like you need me to share what christ has done in mine we need one another because scripture has brought us together god's word has brought us together the work of christ has brought us together for his glory not for ours So Christian, you have been made a child of God. Are you encouraging your brothers and your sisters in the faith? Or are you you tearing others apart, nitpicking that they might not believe the same exact things like you do? over personal preferences of what kind of music you might prefer or or how you think worship should or should not be sung? Are you tearing others apart over who they voted for or what political party they affiliate with? Are you tearing people apart because they might not go to the same school as you or had gone to the same school for those of you that uh, uh, are really... uh, uh, into your alma mater? Are you critiquing the people that might look different from you, the way that they appear, the way that they dress, the color of their skin, the background that they came from? Are you so busy tearing people apart that you are neglecting that we have been called to be faithful to one another? And is your heart faithful to the body that is being built With Christ as the head. Picking up in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? This is echoing a very similar thought that He talked about back in chapter 3, which is warning the, the brothers and sisters against apostasy. You have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ, this beautiful, precious thing that has brought new life. And if you turn from it, that there is wrath. If you turn your back on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is a consequence to sin. And people of faithfulness should be faithful to holy living. Just as people of faithfulness are faithful to one another, they should also be faithful to holy living, not trying to earn God's favor or to keep it, saying if I can just be good enough, then God will still love me. Because God is not dangling salvation over your head like, oh, you can reach, you're almost there, you can get it. But the author is saying, don't cheapen the grace that has been given to you that was bought by the blood of Christ. Do not take the sacrifice of Christ lightly. In fact, in First John, John would actually question if you ever really believed in the first place. In First John chapter two, verses four through six, it's written, "Whoever says I know him, being Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word." In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. As we looked at the book of James last year, that there must also be deeds with the words. Faith leads to action. Your life mirrors the affections of your heart. If your life is living refusing to repent to sin, if you are refusing to churn from the sin that has entangled your life, then Scripture argues that you need to take a closer look as to what the affections of your heart truly are. The Word of God doesn't tell you to stop going to uh, rated R movies. It doesn't tell you to to stop uh, smoking or drinking or to condemn people that do. The Scripture doesn't tell you uh, who to vote for or what party to align with. It doesn't tell you to dismiss the people that disagree with the things that you believe. But what God does say is be holy as I am holy. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your faith is never earned by the good works that you do, but it is seen in them. The things that you do will never be good enough to buy salvation but the glory and the mercy and the grace of God can be seen in the deeds that you do. So Christian, what is your life known for? When that day comes and, 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 and people think back on the life that you lived, when someone is giving the eulogy that will one day come at your, your funeral down the line, well, what will they say about the kind of life that you lived? That were you the kind of person that your actions lined up with the things that you said you believed. And so people of faithfulness are called to be faithful to one another. People of faithfulness are called to be faithful to holy living, but most importantly, people of faithfulness are faithful to the one who paid the price. Toward the end of of chapter 10 the author is talking about struggle and suffering and sometimes even publicly. Recall the former days after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Remember those times that you had to struggle that you were even Publicly shamed or corrected. Remember that. Remember the compassion that you had. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There will be times of struggle in your own life. And here in in our context in the United States, it's often more just the struggles of life itself than it is matters of faith. Because comparatively to the rest of the world, it's relatively easy to be a Christian here. There aren't people being martyred and murdered just because they believe in the name of Christ. But the author is saying that whenever you do struggle, whenever that time comes, whenever people do disagree with you, whenever you are persecuted, whenever you are mocked or ridiculed, the author says remember not what is going on, but remember what you have. An eternal inheritance that was paid for not by your own effort, but by the work of Christ. In fact, throughout the New Testament, If anything, there's a confirmation that there will be struggle with with phrases like, take up your cross daily and die to your sin. Or after you have suffered a little while, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in our affliction. There's a phrase that people often use that says, God will never give you more than you can handle. And I would say that that is a lie from the pit and stinks of sulfur. Because God will give you more that you, than you can handle. Because it teaches you, it trains you that you are not enough to earn your own worth, and to buy your own salvation. It takes your eyes off of yourself and puts them on Jesus Christ, the only one who has the power to save. God will give you more than you can handle because it forces you to trust completely in the work of Jesus Christ, the one who took your sin to the cross and rose again, giving you his victory. And his righteousness. And he says, I've already done it for you. And then as he's sending the disciples out at the end of Matthew 28, he says, I am with you until the end of the age. This God who redeems you and has made you his child says, I am with you until the end of the age of the age and that is why the author of Hebrews can say in verse 39 but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls not because you and I are or will ever be strong enough but because Jesus is so this morning I want to challenge you in your own heart in your own life as you look at your life and where you are Do you look around at the world around you, the culture around you, the the times as they are, and are you terrified or full of anxiety? Like the people of futility, are you depending on your own efforts, making spiritual sacrifices to gods that can never save and chasing after shadows that can never be caught? Or will you stand up as... People of faithfulness, faithful to one another, worshiping with one another and encouraging one another to faithfulness. Are you faithful to holy living, letting your life reflect your heart's true affection? And are you faithful to the one who paid the price for your debt to make you a child of the living God? Will you place your confidence in the work of Christ today? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of your Son, that there is no name like Jesus. There is no other one who could ever pay our debt. There is no one here that could ever be good enough, and yet out of your love for your people that you sent your son to take our place, to die our death, and to give us his holiness, his righteousness. You look at the work of Christ, and you look at us, and you call us your children, and God, we thank you. God, we pray, and we confess That far too often we try to depend on ourselves. We want to rest in our own work and our own efforts. We want to be good enough, but we never can. God, we confess and we repent. And God, we pray that you would make us people of faithfulness. That we would rest and have confidence in the work of Christ alone. That because of what Jesus has done, that we would be faithful to him and to one another, and to how your word has called us to live as holy lights shining before all men. We thank you, God, and we love you. And we pray all of this in the precious, and mighty, and victorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.